Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. Um, I've had a blast hanging out with you guys over the last couple of days. Y'all have been so kind to me, especially in inviting me in to do things that I'm really bad at, like nine square. And, you know, some of you have explained to me really well the rules of the gaga pit, but I'm not getting in there because I broke my back snowboarding a long time ago. And sometimes, you know, I just will bend down to pick something up and my, I will be three or four days not being able to do anything. So I'm going to stay out of the pit, okay? But uh, enjoying nine square, enjoying carpet ball. Where's my nemesis? We went to triple. I beat some of you. Um, not trying to puff myself up or be proud or anything, but anyway, uh, I've enjoyed hanging out with you guys. But you know, well, <laughs> what we just did in that time of worship, I wish you guys could be up here hearing everybody singing this direction. It sounds amazing. Um, and at the end of the day, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to worship with you guys. I'm here to learn with you guys. I'm here to share a little bit of um, the light that the Lord has given me with you guys. And, and as we sang the first couple stanzas of what a beautiful name it, it is, you know, I'm standing back here and my eyes just filled with tears because here's the thing. Some of you sing that song and you understand the reality of what it means. You understand the reality of what we looked at last night with, with creation and, and Adam and Eve falling into um, a spirit of disobedience and, and sin and death and all of that ugly stuff that entered into the world when they did that. And you already understand the gravity of that situation on our lives. And some of you, having, having understood the gravity of that situation, you understand the bad news. You, you, you've already processed the good news and, and understand the fact that, you know, in Genesis 3.15, God said, hey, there's going to there's gonna come a time, remember he was speaking to the serpent, there's going to come a time when the, the serpent is going to strike the heel of the seed of the woman. And the, I used the New American Standard last night. I don't, it's, that's the translation I usually preach out of, but there's, there's other translations that give a picture of that, Genesis 3.15, that I love more. It says the, the serpent is going to strike the heel of the seed of the woman. That's talking about Jesus. And then it says, but the seed of the woman is going to crush his head. You know, he's going to be the one that ultimately has the victory. And some of you, you get that. You've experienced that already in your own life. You've moved from a place of death to a place of life. And I'm tickled to death for you. Some of you are hearing this and you're seeing the passion in, in, in some others' voices. And you're like, man, these people are crazy. Get me to nine o'clock so I can go play nine square and get in the gaga pit and all this. Listen, bear with me, okay? Because this is serious stuff. And my desire above anything else this week is that you guys get this because there's nothing more important in any of our lives than what we're, what we're talking about here, okay? Now, having said that, let me, let me just prepare you. We're going to come out of the gate 
with, with something really heavy and really deep. Uh, a, a couple verses here from Romans chapter 5. And some of you are going to hear what I'm saying, and you're going to say, that just went right over my head. Welcome to the club. That is the story of my life. But then I'm going to break it down for you a little bit, and I'm going to explain to you why I'm starting out with this, okay? So, last night, Genesis, creation, God created everything perfect, gave Adam and Eve the freedom to choose. They chose disobedience. Sin and death enter the world, okay? Now, Romans 5. This is a New Testament retelling of of what we looked at last night. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that one man was Adam, okay? Um, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of of him who is to come. Now, if I was sharing that verse in, in my church, we'd probably be four weeks looking at those 12, 13, 14, looking at those three verses. There's a lot of stuff there. Is that a hand? What is it? Hold that thought. We're going to talk about that. Okay, hold that thought. Um, so the first Adam was a type of the, uh, the, the next Adam, another Adam that would come. Now, if that verse went over your head, let me just, let me paraphrase it for you because verse 12 is what I really want you to see there. This is essentially what we're seeing. Because of Adam's disobedience, sin entered the world. And as a result of that sin, death entered the world. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Okay? Now, just so that we're all on the same page, let me define sin real quick. Uh, Sin is rebellion against God and transgression against His law. Again, you go back to what we saw last night. You see it in its most basic form. God says, this is what I've created. This is how I've created you to live. You live according to this way. Boom. It's going to be great. If you don't, everything's going to change. All right? And we saw... Uh, They rebelled against God. They transgressed His law. And so because of that, according to Romans chapter 5, we have an inheritance. Now, inheritance is a word that... I need to do a little dance and shuffle around until I find a good spot where I'm not... Inheritance is one of those words that sometimes we get kind of excited about. You know, this, this prospect that maybe we have a distant relative in some other state that knows about us and we don't know about them. And, you know, someday somebody's going to knock on our door and be like, guess what? Your great aunt Matilda, three times removed, has, you know, passed and left you this tremendous uh, estate. And, you know, there's books and movies about that. And, and in a, a sense, you're like, hey, that'd be, that'd be pretty sweet. Not that you're... Aunt Matilda that you never knew died, but that you inherited all of this stuff. But here's the, the, the unfortunate thing that we read in Scripture, and this is kind of bad news. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's reality, so we need to, we need to talk about it. The reality is that because of what Adam and Eve did in sin and death entering the world, that becomes our inheritance. And so from the first beat of our hearts, both of those things plague us. Because we sin, and because our sin separates us from a holy God. Scripture says, the wages of sin is death. 
So sin and death are our inheritance. That's the pickle I told you guys we were in back on our first night together. Now again, when we hear these kinds of truths, we can respond in a couple of different ways. Here's the the two ways that I hear most people respond. They hear that truth and they say, man, that's bad news. And then I turn around and I say, but wait, there's more. (laughs) You know, there's good news. And they're like, oh man, that's great. Other people hear that and they get a little bit salty because they say, you know, that's really not fair. Adam's the one that sinned. I didn't sin. And so why is my inheritance sin and death? Let me ask you guys a question. Did anybody have to teach you how to sin? I can honestly say nobody had to teach me how to sin. I was real good at it from a real young age. In fact, I remember the first time I kind of had a little rebellious streak. I was about three years old. And I remember this vividly. You know, a lot of memories from childhood I don't really remember, but I remember this vividly. And I remember the process in my mind of thinking, I really shouldn't do this. And then thinking, ah, oh, but what the heck? You know, I might as well. Uh, my parents had a waterbed. And I know that was like really the 80s. I don't know, think that they're really still a thing because they're huge and cumbersome and heavy. Um, but my parents had a waterbed. My dad was also an avid deer hunter, and so he had pocket knives everywhere. I remember going into my parents' room one day, unattended. It was their fault, not mine, right? They should have been watching me. And I remember picking up that pocket knife, and I'm fiddling with it. And then I look over at that waterbed, and I'm like, man, I wonder what would happen. And at the same time, I'm thinking, I really shouldn't do that. Then I did it a couple more times, and then I realized what I've done. There's water all over the place, and I think, oh, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for this. And So I fold the knife up, and I put it back where it was, and I go to my room, and then a few minutes later, I hear my mom yell, um, cornbread, right? No, she's Joel Aaron. That's my first and middle name. I knew I was in trouble, and she's like, come in here. Did you do this? And it's ob- there's nobody else at the house but me, and I'm like, nope. Wasn't me. She's like, you didn't take that knife and poke these holes into the bed. I'm like, nope. Don't know who. I'll bet somebody broke in and did it, you know. Came in here just to poke holes in your waterbed. You guys remember doing stuff like that when you were little? Nobody had to teach me how to lie. It came perfectly natural to me. Nobody had to teach me to rebel and to to pursue my selfish ambitions and desires. It came perfectly natural to me. I don't have anybody else to blame. I remember the first time my oldest son told me a lie. It was over something silly. Hey, you got to finish your lunch and then you can have a cookie or something like that. Well, he's having a hot dog. He loves hot dogs. I leave the room. I come back in the room. Hey, did you finish your hot dog? Yep. Okay, here's your cookie. I go to throw something away. The, the hot dog's in the trash can. And I'm like, are you sure you ate your hot dog? Yep. My heart was broken. What did I think? Did I think that he was going to go through life being perfect? But if, like he lied to me. I need to get away from the center. Little thing there. Um, and it broke my heart. But that's the reality. It comes natural to us. Okay? Nobody had to, nobody had to teach us how to do it. Nobody has to help us. We, are, we, are, we inherit that. That is our inheritance. Literally. This proneness to sin. It's our inheritance. None of us are exempt from it. But I want to show you guys an illustration from the Old Testament that will set us up for the New Testament reality that we're going to see um, 
tomorrow night. And if you're not really familiar with the Old Testament, a lot of people, when you say Old Testament, they're like, oh man, that's the really boring first like two-thirds of, of the Bible. Y'all, the Old Testament's awesome. If there was you know, a lot of movies made about Old Testament stuff, it would be rowdy, and you guys would be all about it. But since you have to read it, you're like, oh man, it's so lame. Here's what I love about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a shadow of the reality of the New Testament. You guys understand how shadows work? Um, last night, there was a drama right before I spoke, and I was standing back here, and I was looking at the screen that was down in the back, and, and there was light shining on uh, our drama person, and what I was seeing behind the drama person, because of the angle that I was looking at, I was seeing the shadow back there. Um, and what did that shadow indicate to me? That somewhere in front of that shadow, there is a reality, okay? So when we come to the Old Testament, and we read these stories and these illustrations, Understand that, that other places in Scripture, those shadows are, are revealed, and there is a reality, and they're pointing us to that um, reality. Okay, so let me, let me read to you the shadow, and then we'll, it'll point forward to the reality. Show of hands, who has heard of David? And I'm not talking about your homeboy David, all right? I'm talking about David in the Old Testament, like David the shepherd boy, David and Goliath, David the psalmist, King David. Okay, some of you know about David. All right, I want to talk to you guys for, for just a few minutes this evening about David because he's a really important guy in, in Scripture, okay? He was the second king in Israel's history. Let's find out if any of you guys know any Old Testament history. Who was Israel's first king? No, starts with an S. Saul, all right? Yeah, King, king Saul, that was Israel's first king, and Saul had a son named Jonathan, all right? Jonathan and David became really, really good friends. Like, they were best friends. Their relationship was, you know, and some of you guys have best friends. Like, eight of you left carpet ball to go talk to someone on the phone today. Maybe that was your best friend. I don't know. It was kind of weird that, like, eight of y'all left to do that, but... Anyway, you guys have friends, you, you have relationships, you understand what it means when you have a, a deep connecting relationship with someone. This was, this was Jonathan and David, they, they were best of friends. And it became kind of awkward then when God said, you know what, I'm going to remove Saul as Israel's king and I'm going to put David in place as Israel's king. That kind of put Jonathan in a difficult place, didn't it? Because, you know, Saul is his dad and he's the current king and David's his best friend and he's going to be the new king and that changes everything for him. Okay? And I I'm, understand I'm skipping over a lot of history just to give you the high points of this. But as things were kind of unraveling around Jonathan and around David, they got together and they made a covenant. Now, a covenant is kind of like a, a promise. It's, a, it's a, a binding promise between two people. And this is, what, this is what David promised to Jonathan. He promised that he would not cut off his loving kindness from Jonathan's family. Okay? In other words, David says, hey, whatever happens, I've got your back. Your family's back. You know, I'm going to take care of your family. No matter what happens, that's what I'm going to do. Here's why that was important. 
Because when you had a king, and if any of you like history, then you are going to understand this. It was typical. Who takes over when a king dies? Their son, yeah. And if they don't have a son, then like a nephew or something. You know, they're, they're dynasties. It's, it's one of those things that stays in the family. Now, if there were opponents to the throne, someone outside of the family that ultimately took over the throne, do you know what their responsibility was? To snuff out any, any other opponents of the throne. To snuff out any of the family members that might later rise up and contend for the throne. Again, that puts David in kind of an awkward place here. So, so Saul has the throne, but God has said, hey, David's going to be the next king, which means that when David becomes king, he's supposed to eliminate the line of Saul so that nobody can come rise up against him later and try and take over the throne. And if you follow the story um, through 2 Samuel, then you see that that's exactly what happens. Um, Jonathan and Saul are eventually killed in battle. David assumes the, the throne as king of Israel. A lot more happens there. But listen to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. It says, Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. This is down the road. Jonathan and Saul are dead. David is king. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was... Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Can you guys say that? Mephibosheth. All right. Some of you guys got to see my kids, my two youngest kids in the last couple days. Can I show you something really precious? All right. I, every couple weeks, I ask my little girl Hazel to say Mephibosheth. Do we have that video? All right. I, she wouldn't do it live, so just look at this recording of her trying to Hazel, say. can you say Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth. You see how confidently she does that? Mephibosheth. Yeah, Mephibosheth. I understand that it's hard to say, okay? But he's important. I wouldn't just bring him up for no reason at all. And if you guys see her, hey, ask her if she'll say it. She's gotten a lot better since then, okay? So this is Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. Here's why he's important, okay? Um, time passes. Israel is eventually united under King David. They're thriving under his leadership. They're thriving under the hand of God. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we read that David remembered his covenant with Jonathan. David remembered his covenant with Jonathan. What was his covenant? That he was not going to cut off his loving kindness to Jonathan and to his, to his family, okay? So chapter, chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, he remembers that, okay? And so this is, this is how he acts once he's remembered that, okay? Um, I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I guess this is verse 1 now. Uh, David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? All right, so he's looking around and he's asking servants, Hey, is there, is there anybody of Saul's house left that I can show kindness to in order to fulfill my covenant to, to Jonathan. 
Verse 2 says, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. What's his name? Mephibosheth. Excellent. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. That sounds like a terrible place to live, doesn't it? Lodabar? Yeah. Uh, verse 5, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. In verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he said, Here is your servant. You know what's going through the mind of Mephibosheth in this moment? He's got me here because he's going to kill me. That's exactly what is going through the mind of Mephibosheth right here in this moment. I, I, my nurse hid me. She took care of me. I stayed out of the picture as long as I could, but now he's found me, and, and he's going to do to me exactly what is owed to me just based on tradition and how things work. So at this point, it would be safe for us to say that Mephibosheth's inheritance, at one point, it was going to be the kingdom. And even if he wasn't king, even if he didn't rule, he was going to live like one of the king's sons, right? He wasn't going to work. He was going to be taken care of. He was going to be well cared for. He was going to be safe. That was his original inheritance, but his inheritance changed. And now it's safe for us to say that Mephibosheth's inheritance certainly was death. He lived in a nowhere place trying to live a low-key existence just so that he wouldn't be killed. Why? Did Mephibosheth do anything against David? No. Because of tradition. Because of who his father was. Because of who his father was, his inheritance was death. Certain death. All right? Not because of what he'd done, not because he wronged David, and yet in this moment, he fully expects to lose his life. And so he hits the ground on his face before King David. You guys still have any imagination left from Sunday night? Put yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes for a minute. And imagine being on your face before the king who you absolutely know 100% has brought you there to kill you. And then imagine hearing these words. David said to him in verse 7, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And not only that, Mephibosheth, I'm going to restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself, and he can't believe, he can't believe that he's hearing this. He says, what is your servant? Who, who am I, O king, that you would regard a dead dog like me? You think Mephibosheth has a high view of himself? No, he knows that according to tradition... According to tradition, he's owed nothing. 
his inheritance is certain death. And now he's hearing this and he, he can't believe it. Not only is David not going to kill him, but he's going to restore to him the inheritance, everything that, that was Saul's to begin with. The servants, the land. And what's the reasoning that David gives? He says, I'm doing this for the sake of your father. Because he was my friend. Because we made a covenant together. It wasn't anything that Mephibosheth did either way. He didn't wrong David, yet again, according to the custom of the day, he, he deserved death. And, and at the same time, he wasn't a son of the king, and yet now he's going to be treated like a son of the king. This is his new inheritance. Verse 9, Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. You shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so your servant will do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Y'all, I love this story. Because it's a picture, it's an illustration that I can understand. That's another reason I love the Old Testament, because I have to think in pictures. I've got a very simple mind. Some of you say amen, but you have simple minds too. Or maybe you're all intellectuals and you can think through things. I can't. My kids, I had my kids memorize that verse. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Because when I hear that, I'm reminded of this amazing transformation that took place where an inheritance goes from certain death to the complete opposite. Now he's eating at the table just as if he's one of the king's sons, just like he has been adopted into the king's family. So Mephibosheth's inheritance changed. Now, that's the shadow. Let me show you the reality of that real quick. We're just about to wrap up, okay? I'm going back to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, think Mephibosheth, all right? He's your shadow. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Think about Genesis chapter 3, 15. We talked about the first night. When God is divvying out all the consequences of, of, of the sin and the disobedience of Adam and Eve. He says, hey, there's going to come a time. The serpent's going to strike the, uh, the heel of the seed of the woman. But he's going to crush his head. This is what we're seeing here now. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 7, you guys can resonate with this. This is plain. One will hardly die for a righteous man. You know, that's sacrifice that we don't, we don't have much concept of what this looks like. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. And this is, this is my favorite verse in all of Scripture, y'all. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But, but's a term of contrast. You know, what's Paul been saying here? He says, you know, this idea of sacrifice, this idea of one laying down one's life for somebody else, oh man, it, it, you just don't really see it. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Y'all, that's good news. This whole deal about inheriting sin and death, that's bad news. And a lot of people, they're like, oh, bad news. I don't want to hear bad news. I only want good vibes, good news. Yeah, yeah. Listen, bad news makes good news that much better. All right? And so while we have this inheritance of sin and death, understand here that God, just like he said he was going to do in the very beginning, made a way. And he made that way through, through Jesus And he demonstrates that love that he has for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. All right? So I hope you see the similarities between Mephibosheth and us. You know, this is as good an example uh, in the Old Testament as I can come up with. We're both in a helpless situation. Our inheritance is certain death. And yet someone steps in and makes it possible for our inheritance to change. In the account we just read, it was King David. It was as simple as him giving a command. In our instance, that person is Jesus. And it required him giving his life on our behalf. The scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so for our situation to truly be taken care of, uh, in order for us to truly be set free from the chains of sin and death that are our inheritance. Somebody had to die in our place. And that person is Jesus. So Romans 5, going back to the beginning, tells us that sin entered the world through one man, and through him we inherit sin and death. But at the same time, it's only through one man, the second Adam, Jesus, that we find our hope for the future and a change in our inheritance. And that's something we're going to unpack a little bit more tomorrow, okay? Let's bow. Father... We thank you for your word and for the truth that is contained in it and for the um, stories in the Old Testament and and the scripture that just help to to illustrate and to reveal to us your heart for us and, and the plan that you set into motion in order to redeem us. And Lord, I pray that the reality of Romans 5, 8, that, that you demonstrate your love for us in sending Jesus to die for us, that that reality will just permeate every single heart of every single person that is here because they're all infected. They're all, they're all affected by this sin and this death that was brought about by Adam. But you made a way through your son, Jesus, that we might be redeemed. And Lord, again, I'm just reminded that you're the only one that can open our hearts to truly understand that reality. And so my prayer this evening, Lord, is that you would do that. That you would open the eyes of these campers and you would help them to truly understand how much you love them. And how much you want a relationship with them. And how far you went to make that possible. Lord, do that. Father, watch over us this evening as we continue to fellowship, as we play games, as we just enjoy this place that is River Valley Ranch. Lord, thank you for loving us. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Life After Camp episode. Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.